Hello, and welcome to Luann's Land Podcast. Now, here's your host, award-winning country music artist, Luann Hunt. Over the last four and a half decades, the rock band Orleans has continued to prove that great music will always stand the test of time. Not that long after forming in 1972, the members of Orleans found themselves at the top of the charts with hits such as Dance With Me, Still The One, and Love Takes Time. All these years later, fans are still flocking to the band's concerts to hear these magical tunes, as well as Orleans' vast catalog of timeless material. Today, Luann's Land Podcast welcomes Lance Hoppin, who was one of the original members of the group. I'm sure he has some great stories to tell, so let's dive in and bring on this legend of rock and roll. Well, hello, Lance. How are you on this wonderful day? I'm good, although it's quite cold here in Tennessee. Oh, you're in Tennessee. Wow. I'm, I'm in Nashville. I moved here in 89. It's been good to me. That's good. Yeah, it's a great city. Really great city. So I'm really excited about the fact that you guys have been touring and recording for so long. And I wanted to just start out by asking you, what is the secret to this wonderful longevity that you've had? It's a long winding story and nobody, least of all us, could have predicted that we'd still be doing this 47 years in. We're just starting year 47. Along that way, the band has let's call it taking sabbaticals. I guess one way to put it is our mantra is we're still having fun, comes from still the one, and if we're not having fun, then we're not doing it. So along the timeline, there were times when it just wasn't any fun, and we fell apart, and then uh, we would reconvene and check it out, and it was fun, so we'd continue, and then it wasn't fun, so we'd stop, and then like that. So there have been I don't know, of the 47 years, maybe only five or six where we didn't actively um, engage in doing live dates. And over that time, of course, there's been roster changes. It started as a quartet, and only two of us still survive. But by and large, uh, the band remains stable these days. My younger brother, Lane, has been with us since 2000 as a as a mainstay, and also uh, Playa Mero, who was with us briefly as guitar player in the early 80s, became a permanent member in uh, in 2005 or six when John Hall went off to uh, pursue his time in Congress. So, And we recently had a drummer shift from Charlie Morgan, who was with us for 18 years and um, went off to greener, greener pastures. So we have a, our seventh full-time drummer in that 47-year history, a guy named Brady Spencer, a friend of mine here from Nashville. So I guess part of being around here in year 47 is it's what we each do, I don't know, best maybe, collective, collectively, certainly. Uh, we enjoy doing it with each other, but we all have other parts of our career that we pursue. And so we don't get locked into this is the only thing we do. Everybody has private interests and pursues them and we come together. And, you know, a good year for us is 30 to 40, 40 shows, which is looks like we'll do again this year. That's great. So kudos to you guys. Well, it's like, what else are we going to do is part of it. And uh, the fact that the audiences still want us to play, it keeps us uh, coming out. I mean, if there was no demand at all, and it's not like we're at our heyday. We're not, you know, we're not setting record crowds anywhere, but people come in and when they come, they enjoy it. So uh, it's a mutual satisfactory kind of thing. 
One of the things that I've always loved about Orleans music is it doesn't matter, you know, if you heard it for the first time or you're still hearing it all these years later, it has this incredible power just to transcend time and space and really take you somewhere. And I wanted to ask you if in the beginning when you guys first were getting started out, did you have a sense that your music had that kind of power and magic to it? Or is this something that you started to realize as time went on? Um, there's no way to predict, you know, any of that. Certainly there was tremendous zeal and drive within the band. The band had started as a trio, uh, John Hall, my brother Larry, and Wells Kelly. And they were up and running for about nine months. And they were great, really, really interesting to watch. Uh, they all switched seats and played each other's instrument from song to song. It was like a round robin of talent. And uh, But they wanted to expand out of the limitations of being a trio, and that's how I got my, my foot in the door. And then from there, it was experimental. You know, We did a lot of cover songs. We played a lot of jammy stuff. We did the club and college circuit and reinvented ourselves as we went. And the first album was a batch of songs backlogged. So it was a really good bunch of tunes, sparsely produced. Remains kind of a fan favorite for the diehards. But when we hit our stride with uh, being assigned to Asylum Records, produced by Chuck Plotkin, the head of A&R there, um, he was able to mold the raw elements into commercially successful hit records, not just really good songs, but hit records. Um, so he was the fifth Beatle, if you want to say. And that resulted in a minor hit with Let the Music, which opened the door to a major hit with Dance With Me and put us on the map. The thing about Dance With Me, though, is very atypical of everything we had done to that point. An acoustic kind of soft rock thing was kind of anathema to the funky R&B laced rock bar band um, where we came from. So it, it changed the course of direction of the band. And then a year later, when Still the One was so successful, that kind of pegs the mainstream of what we've become and nobody could have known that would become such an anthem or one of the most licensed songs ever for commercials and movies and TV stuff. So that was completely out of left field, the fact that it has had such staying power. And then Love Takes Time in the follow-up. In our second incarnation, that proved the point that we could continue without John to some degree. But the lesson of history was that it was really a bad idea for John to leave the band in 77. Although we all went on to success separately, we never recaptured the momentum we had at that point. So, you know, live and learn. The fact that we're here is enough, and we're grateful for that. Yes, like I said, that is really a testament to you guys. You know, the producers back in those days had such an awesome ear for each particular band or, or solo artist that they worked with, and they were able to create a sound for them by and large, that no other act had. Where I notice in today's music, it's not that way. You tend to hear the same kind of sound from each group over and over again. Yeah, it's very formulaic as the science of it became, you know, more uh, tangible, which has happened in everything, in, in marketing and demographics and targeting, all, you know, niche marketing, all that stuff. But nobody had corporate sponsorship till Journey. I mean, figured out. So it was a wild, wild west. And it wasn't like there weren't trends. There was, you know, the Dewey Brothers, Pablo Cruz, Firefall, they're all our contemporaries. And so there was that. 
but the art of production can make or break a thing. Case in point, our second album for ABC contained our original versions of Let There Be Music and Dance With Me. Those songs were recorded in previous versions, but ABC didn't hear them as hits because they weren't, they basically weren't. They weren't hit records. They were good songs. And so they let, they dropped us. And that put us back in New York City showcasing. We went to Max's Kansas City legendary club there for a seven night gig. And the legend is, and I believe this is true, if my memory is not all that faulty, we had two shows a night, three on the weekends. And I really believe it was the last show of the last night when Chuck Plotkin showed up to hear the band when we were just dog tired and ragged. But he heard, he heard the potential there. So he signed the band and then he got the rights back from ABC to re-record those songs. And that's how Dance With Me became a, became a hit. I'm totally in agreement that it really is all in the production in a lot of cases because I've heard songs in their demo form and then I hear them fully produced and they can be like a totally different song. Yeah, and actually demos can, be, can have a charm or magic, magic to them that's hard to recreate. But uh, so they say, don't fall in love with a demo because you got to make your master. But yeah, they got the, the converse can be true. And in that case, yeah, Chuck took those songs and applied his knowledge base. He wasn't a musician. He wasn't a player. He was a student of music and he understood. And so he could take things apart and put them back together and make it make sense to us, the artists, to go along with that, that vision. And one thing, I guess it's another thing I'm calling, uh, we thought of ourselves basically as players who sang. And he saw us as singers who played. And the nuance there, I guess, speaks volumes. And on that score, I just want to remind people, there was no digital editing. There was no auto-tune. There was no, there was none of that um, back then. And so when you hear those vocals sparkling in tune and really, really good, that was when three or four guys around one mic had to get it right all at once. And so uh, we're pretty proud of that. Yeah, you know, it's just that thing about being committed to excellence that you don't see in this world today because, yeah, everything can be electronically fixed, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and nobody really has to work that hard. But, yeah, you're right. Back then, there were no tricks like that. So you had to be really great at what you did or you weren't going to make it, right? Yep, you had to be able to nail it. You had to be able to nail it. fairly quickly and uh, in connection with everybody else. There's a, there's a standard joke in the, in the biz now. It's the, uh, the singer does it take, the engineer says, and this is a Pro Tools kind of uh, session, right? So the, the digital engineer says, that sucked. Come on in. Right. In other words, we'll fix, we'll fix it later. If you get close enough, you can make it sound great, right? But that was not the case in, in the day. Well, and I think that's actually why the music in my opinion anyway, was so much better because people really took their art seriously and they worked at it and they didn't just rest on their laurels. Oh, we'll put a certain beat on this and Mm -hmm. make it a a pop song and it'll be a hit. Yeah. And I don't want to be an old codger and say there's nothing good out there because there is, but um, there's no barrier to entry at this point. Used to be, you know, you had to go the route. You had to get a record deal. You had to do all that stuff. The only outlet was radio. So there was filters upon filters and only certain things rise to the top. Now, nowadays, anybody can record at their home very economically and release it via YouTube or whatever and um, have a career if they, if they find their niche market. But in the flip side of that is um, there's a lot of garbage 
that makes it through. And it's hard to uh, filter out the noise to find the good stuff. And some people actually support that garbage, which is really shocking. <laughs> well, you know what? There's there's a market for everything, right? I mean, and, and there's tastes are so varied. Just look at the political situation we have. We have such a polarized and and different set of uh, values and opinions, right? That others, one side can't understand the other. And that's kind of how it is in music. There's a taste. There, there's taste and there's lack of taste, right? But there's a market for everything. It's so true. But I also think part of the reason that it's gotten like this is because people don't really care so much about being authentically moved about anything. It's all kind of turning into a head thing as, as opposed to a heart thing. There, there's a lot of kind of automated and uh, throwaway music. Right. Well, it's the same with movies, too. You go to these movies and they're just so soulless. Most of them, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> I get it. I see. I'm a big. Uh, I I I, uh, I collected comic books when I was a kid, so I'm all about it, right? So I like. I have to go see all these Marvel and DC. I just have to see them. But you know, it's not about the script or even the acting. It's just the the uh, eye candy and the the tech. You know, it just it's kind of like it doesn't really matter. So I, I admit that, but I still enjoy it. So I guess there's, I guess you could say the same thing about um, about what people indulge in musically. Right, exactly. Well, I listen to Sirius Radio. I have the bridge on a lot. And, of course, they play your music. And then I have all these time life collections from the mm-hmm, 60s mm-hmm. and the 70s. And your music's always on those 70s collections. And I know that when an Arlene song comes on, I just want to still turn it up and just get lost in it. And I can tell you honestly that a lot of music today does not affect me in that way. Right. But part of that you have to understand is, uh, and I don't know your age, but you said you, you're, you've been following us a long time. So it's the music of a generation. And and part of the appeal of Orleans or 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 other contemporaries who are still working, the Firefalls, Pablo Cruz, Pure Prairie League, Ambrosia, ARS. Part of the appeal of it is that warm, warm and fuzzy. That when those songs come on, you, it throws you back to a different time and place. That nostalgically speaking, you know, seems comforting. So that's a big part of it. It's not just that the music stands up. It's that you can remember where you were when you heard it the first time or what you did to that song at some point. So that's a, that is a big part of it. I got into country in the 90s, and there was a lot of songs that I really, really liked and mm-hmm. artists, but I can hear those songs today, and my mind just goes, oh, that sounds dated. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, that music just, even though I loved it so much in the 90s, and it was sort of the soundtrack of my life back then, I don't have that same reaction that I have when I listen to the classic rock. It's, it's really uh-huh. funny. But, but by and large, you know, knowing music the way that I do, I really feel like the production and the melodies and everything were just superior. I'm not going to argue with it. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys write now? Do you, are you still writing new material? People do write. Myself, I don't write a lot. I, I write well, I think, and I have 
collaborated with a bunch of people who are also good. So in my shameless self-promotion part here, I'll just say that I, I did finally a real solo CD in 2016, came out in January 2017, of 15 of my tunes that had never seen the light of day. Most most of them had never been recorded. And it was important for me to document it, if for no other reason than my own satisfaction and as kind of a legacy piece for my kids and grandkids, something to document it. So that was important. And uh, having done it, I don't spend a lot of time writing these days. My Where my bread is buttered is live performing. And I do that not only with Orleans, but with other entities as well. And that keeps me plenty busy. But I just want to make one corollary here. It was interesting. I sent I sent it off to my co-writers, that CD, one of whom is very accomplished, has 200-something covers and uh, of his own material. And uh, is very critical. I mean, that's part of his thing is critiquing other people's work. It was He made a business out of it. So he sent back a glowing review. But what was surprising to me was he said he loved the authentic 70s production. Now, I did not go in to make an authentic 70s production. I just did what I hear, right? I did what I feel is best. And it landed, I guess, to him in that zone. And maybe he's right, that it's very similar not asimilar, not atypical of records that were made in that time period. And that's because that's how I hear things. And and that's the case of Orleans always and forever. We never, ever knowingly decided to chase a trend or do something because it, it would be, it was like something else or it would be popular. It's just, this is who we are and we can't really do anything other than who we are. So the, the, um, the body of work, which is not three hits, it's like 16 discrete albums and then some contains some really really fine work over over the decades and i would urge people to go seek that out because the modern trend of course is oh, i like that one song one song one song that's it um but there's a wealth of, of uh, good stuff there for those who want to um investigate a little bit more yeah and i understand that you guys still sound as good as ever, and maybe maybe even better than you did back in the day. So I imagine all that constant touring and performing keeps those chops pretty sharp. Well, they, uh, people say that you know, sound, these guys sound great. You sound as good as you ever did. Blah blah blah. For me, you know, there's nothing that can replace the magic of the original quartet. Uh, you had to be there. It was really, in retrospect, easy to see why people like that so much. It was really exciting and adventurous. Um, and we got tamed from there, you know, we got groomed and we got um, streamlined. We had the stage designer and, you know, dance instructor and a bunch of stuff that, you know, we don't bother with anymore, but the original energy was irreplaceable. And each version of the band has had its own really good high points. And so does this quintet has its, really strong high points. So we're not embarrassed to go play or we're not just milking it. You know, I'm proud of it. Our time is kind of coming to an end and I wanted to see if you could share maybe one of your favorite stories from the early days when you guys were starting out and trying to get in the business. And You know, that, that would be difficult because my memory is not the best part of my brain and um, it was the 70s let's keep that in mind so there's a lot of fog and uh can't quite recall 
I'll tell you this, my friend Joe Puerta from Ambrosia has an idea for a book and it's called Worst Gig Ever. So it writes itself. All you have to do is ask anybody in our biz, what was your worst gig ever? And then you, you just collect the stories and edit it. So that's, that's one thing to do. And I have, I've got those two. I, I would recommend uh, anyone wants to know about us a little bit more from somebody else's perspective. We had a legendary sound mixer, a guy named Dinky Dawson. He had been on the road with, I don't know, the Birds and Joni Mitchell and Steely Dan and you name it, Fleetwood Mac. And he was our guy for the summer of 76 when we were at our peak, 70, 76, 77. And he did write a book. He wrote, and in that, that book, it's called The Road by Dinky Dawson. There's a whole chapter developed about that tour, Jackson Brown tour and, uh, and us and other gigs in that, in that region. So that'd be worth a read. And maybe you'll write a book one of these days. <laughs> I think it's in there, but again, I don't know how to access access the data. I was just saying to my husband yesterday, time goes fast, but on the other hand, if you start to really think about your life, a lot happened. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you bet. It's really funny. Well, before we go, what's the name of your solo album, and where can people get a copy? Uh, well, in general, anything you want to know or acquire about Orleans um, is at orleansonline.com. And my album, Conjuring, is the title of it. That's available there as well. And I'm very pleased with it. So uh, that, would, that would be a good acquisition. If you like Orleans, you'll like, the, you'll like my record. Yeah, well, I can't wait to go take a listen to it. And this has just been such a delight. And thank you so much for being so candid and sharing all these really cool stories. Now that we've hit year 47 and even have a, a one gig booked for year 48, geez, um, we may as well go to 50, right? So we're bucking for that. We'll see if we make it or not. Well, again, thank <laughs> you so much for being on the show and keep on rocking, guys. Thank you, Luann. Appreciate it. Listen to Luann's Land Podcast on Tuesdays from noon to 12.30 p.m. Pacific at luannslandpodcast.com or luannslandpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the show on Facebook at Luann's Land Podcast and on Twitter at Luann's Land. All episodes will be archived for free on-demand streaming. <laughs>